Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I am your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number 20 for the week of November the 1st, 2020. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my explanations of various health disorders and medical conditions. My goal is to provide you, the listener, with new insights and awareness of how our bodies function, how medical professionals identify and treat conditions and problems, and how one may cultivate a lifestyle and practice that can prevent or reduce health problems. Thanksgiving is November 26th this year. In the medical profession, many people show up at the ER and urgent cares over the Thanksgiving weekend complaining of abdominal pain. Very often, the reason is obvious. But while abdominal pain is a very common complaint that physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants encounter, we have to remain objective and perform a proper evaluation. This episode addresses the assessment of acute abdominal pain. For the purposes of our discussion, we, we are excluding infants or young children under the age of 12 or any trauma or chronic abdominal pain conditions. That means any pain more than one to two weeks of duration. Acute abdominal pain is a nonspecific complaint that many patients have experienced and can have a variety of severities and implications. The timing, location on the abdomen, the quality of pain, the severity of pain, where the pain is radiating, and precipitants, things that help to cause it or things that help to relieve it, are very important elements to include. There's also concern about medications that may have contributed. Um, For example, some people have used uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen or aspirin or naproxen or that class of medications. And if you dump these into your abdomen repeatedly, especially if it's been empty and there hasn't been any food in your stomach, you can definitely provoke an episode of acute gastritis. The other thing that's important uh, for the clinician to inquire about is your normal routine bowel habits. How often do you have a bowel movement? Is it of normal stool consistency and such? We also are interested in learning about your recent uh, history of meals and eating. Have you recently eaten from an outside restaurant? Have other persons that shared the meal with you also complained of similar symptoms? Have you uh, experienced any type of diarrhea, nausea, and such? These are all common questions that uh, assist the clinician in making a proper assessment. 
I will add that heavy alcohol consumption uh, on a chronic basis is also associated with disorders such as acute pancreatitis or liver disease. When a patient is being assessed, we naturally take the vital signs. We're looking for fevers. We're looking for uh, rapid heart rate, what we call uh, tachycardia. Uh, we're looking for blood pressure changes or of concern. Uh, we're looking for additional symptoms, uh, as I mentioned, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, we also have to take into consideration the health status of the individual. For example, do you have any current coexisting medical conditions such as diabetes or have you had any heart uh, conditions or lung disorders or have you had any issues with your genital urinary system, meaning your kidneys and your bladder. Um, it's important for us to have knowledge of your past surgical history. If you've had any organs operated on or removed and how long ago that would have happened. It's important for us to be aware of any family history for disorders such as cancers or uh, bowel disorders. Uh, we also uh, like to know whether you've done any recent travel, uh, which is unlikely given the coronavirus pandemic, but it's always something that uh, persons from time to time have. We also may ask about uh, sexual history, um, whether you have uh, had infections that can sometimes uh, communicate to the abdomen. Now, when a clinician is making an exam, we generally visually see the abdomen as being divided into either four large quadrants, which we call the right upper quadrant, the left upper quadrant, the right lower quadrant, the left lower quadrant, or we divide it into nine smaller regions, kind of like a tic-tac-toe grid uh, where you have nine different squares. So in that uh, manner, the right upper quadrant is typically the area where the liver and the gallbladder reside. Um, in the mid-upper area we call the epigastric region. Uh, involvement in this area would imply the stomach or the pancreas or even your heart could be the source of this disorder. In the left upper quadrant, that's principally uh, the spleen that's involved in that area. If you're looking at a tic-tac-toe grid, you have the middle regions, the right middle, the peri-umbilical, which includes your belly button or umbilicus, and the left mid-region. And in the mid-regions of the abdomen, it could relate to any number of organs. It's not very definitive. Uh, sometimes it's 
the kidney on that side, or it could even be the appendix. In the lower regions, you have the right lower quadrant, which classically is where the appendix resides. It's also the location of the cecum, or the beginning of the large bowel. And for women, it could be an implication of her right ovary. Over the suprapubic region, above the pubic bone, we describe that as being uh, the region of the bladder. And discomfort and pain in that area could be a bladder infection or uh, other related disorder. And over to the left lower quadrant, that's a region typically where the descending colon and sigmoid colon reside. Uh, and diverticulitis is uh, commonly associated in that region. Or again, being a woman, it could be the left ovary. Now, during the physical exam, uh, we have an order of evaluation that is typically followed where we inspect. We're not actually putting our stethoscope on the abdomen. We're not touching the person. We're just looking at how the abdomen appears. Uh, sometimes you will appreciate that the belly looks bloated or distended, um, or you may recognize that uh, there is a pulsation uh, that's prominent on the uh, abdomen just looking at it. Some people uh, might have uh, distension of veins and a lot of veins appearing or even bruise marks. Uh, these are important indicators to the clinician about some of the things that may be happening within the abdomen. Next, we do what is called auscultation. And auscultation is actually listening to the abdomen with your stethoscope. It tells us a lot about uh, what's happening functionally inside of the abdomen. For example, if you hear a lot of gurgling and a lot of uh, rumbling sounds in the abdomen, it implies that there is peristalsis or the contractions of the small bowel occurring, which are common and typical. Um, you may uh, actually hear sparse or no sound uh, happening in the abdomen, which could potentially be a little more ominous that uh, something is not functioning the way that it should. After inspecting and auscultating the abdomen, uh, we may actually do what's called percussion, where we basically take one finger and we tap on the belly. And that is another good clinical uh, tool to help in the diagnosis. Tapping on the belly uh, may reveal a drum-like uh, sound, uh, which implies that there's a lot of air that's distending and filling the abdominal cavity. Uh, or it could be very dull when you tap, uh, implying that uh, there isn't any uh, significant distension um, or the activity in the abdomen is uh, diminished. And last of all, we do what's called palpation. 
and palpation is actually uh, applying finger pressure. You take your whole hand or fingers of your hand and you push down on the abdomen in those respective areas I just described. And you look to see what kind of reaction that evokes on the patient. Some people, if their abdomen is benign or what we call soft, uh, pressing on the belly really has no effect on them at all. And some people, if you make the effort uh, to actually press, they immediately retract and try to push your hand away, which we call guarding. If you do succeed in actually pressing down on the abdomen and you take your hands off and they cry out in pain, that's what we call rebound tenderness. And rebound tenderness or guarding are features that suggest uh, inflammation of the peritoneum or what we call peritonitis. All patients who are presenting with significant abdominal pain are probably going to have a rectal exam to check for any blood as well as any fecal impaction. And all women who present complaining of acute lower abdominal pain should have a pelvic exam to assure that it's not related to some inflammation or infection in the pelvic organs. As far as diagnostic testing is concerned, based on what you've learned from your history and physical exam, the physician or clinician may order some laboratory tests. And the labs that are commonly ordered include the uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, which is a standard lab panel to look at your electrolytes, evaluate your liver, look at your kidneys, uh, that sort of thing. We would probably also want a complete blood count or a CBC. That's going to help uh, identify if there's an increase in the white blood cell line, which is usually indicative of infection. We'd also want to have a urine analysis uh, to check to make sure that there isn't any sort of uh, urinary tract infection or inflammation or blood in that area. Commonly, uh, liver enzymes like what we call aminotransferases or the alkaline phosphatase or the bilirubin is done, uh, especially if there was uh, questionable involvement in the right upper quadrant where the liver is. An amylase, a lipase, or a calcium value is commonly done if we're entertaining the possibility of uh, pancreatitis. Um, if the patient has had epigastric pain, uh, we may actually order cardiac enzymes because sometimes heart attacks can mimic abdominal pain since the heart rests right there in the middle of the chest right on top of the diaphragm and the epigastric area. All women who are of childbearing age will need to confirm that they're not pregnant 
and that's called a HCG blood test. And that would need to be done especially if there's going to be any type of x-rays or imaging tests done. Now, if radiology or imaging tests are ordered, uh, they can be of a variety of uh, tests. If you tapped on the belly and it sounded like a drum and a lot of air or there's distension, a simple upright chest x-ray or what's called a lateral decubitus x-ray where you turn on your side and they shoot an x-ray of your abdomen, it might demonstrate that there's air under the diaphragm, which would imply that there may be a perforation of some uh, part of your uh, GI tract in the intestine, the large or small bowel. A, if you have pain in the right upper quadrant, uh, you may also have an ultrasound in the uh, right upper quadrant to examine the gall's bladder and the liver, suspecting that possibly there is an acute inflammation in the gallbladder or gallstones. The ultrasound could also be used to evaluate the kidneys if you suspect that there may be some kidney stones or some obstruction from kidney stones causing the kidneys to swell up. We call that hydronephrosis. Uh, the study that would probably give the most comprehensive information, of course, would be a CT scan. And a CT scan can evaluate the entire abdominal cavity, uh, and it would uh, give some impressions of the lower parts of the lung, the lower part of the heart, as well as the liver, your stomach, your spleen, your intestines, your pancreas, your adrenal glands, your kidneys, uh, loops of bowel, and that sort of thing. Now, at the conclusion of all of this testing, if no abnormal findings for an organic disease is identified, then the clinician is uh, likely going to treat you for the symptoms that you have. So if it uh, involved nausea, we'll probably treat for that. If it involved some uh, diarrhea or loose stools, we'll probably treat for an infection, uh, that sort of thing. So the take-home points that I think are important for this discussion uh, include, number one, severe or uh, strong acute abdominal pain should be assessed as soon as possible. Not all abdominal pain is due to abdominal organs. Number two, be prepared to provide a good general medical history as well as events that have occurred in the previous 24 to 72 hours. And number three, anticipate that some diagnostic studies will be performed to make a more definitive diagnosis. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured 
that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who make this podcast possible. I encourage everyone listening to get your annual flu shots if you haven't done so already. Symptoms of the annual flu are indistinguishable from the coronavirus symptoms. Plus, you want to be part of the solution and not the problem. As of the time of this recording, there are currently 9.25 million Americans who have been infected by coronavirus and 231,000 Americans who have died this year alone from the coronavirus. 17,667 persons have died here in the state of California alone. There were 3,422 new cases alone here in California on Halloween Day. October 31st. There are still two full months remaining in the year 2020. Finally, I want to repeat the concluding message that I've been giving at each episode for the last couple of months, and thankfully, this will be the last time I have to provide it. Please vote. As of this recording, there are just two days left. If you haven't voted yet, please show up at the polls. America has a very sick and dysfunctional health care system. Your vote added to millions of other people will help determine the future course of health care in our country. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, May you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.